So this is a sub-series within Connected Intelligence going viral. Every couple of episodes, we're going to host Professor Laura Rosella in a conversation about all things population health. She holds the Canada Research Chair in Population Health Analytics. She's authored over 200 peer-reviewed publications in the area of epidemiology, population health, and health services research. She was awarded the Brian McMahon Early Career Epidemiology Award by the Society of Epidemiological Research and was named one of Canada's top 40 under 40. Her research is featured all over the place, including Forbes, Newsweek, Reuters, CBC, CTV, National Post. Our conversations are really focused around the building blocks of what it takes to bring complex ideas to life, the connection between all of us, the connection to our work. And Laura really looks at health as a population issue, the connection between all of us for our overall health and well-being. So we thought it would be awesome to sit down with her and learn more about what population health is, as well as, you know, our most recent bout with population health issues, COVID-19. We talk about uncertainty, understanding how to manage through misinformation, how to manage your own health and contribute to your community. Uh, please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Laura Rosella. So I did a little bit of an intro, but I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind describing your research for us. Like what is population health um, and what interests you about studying it? Yeah. So, I mean, everybody knows what health is. Everyone thinks about their own health every day, maybe their family members' health. Uh, but population health is really about thinking about how health varies across the population. And um, John Hopkins School of Public Health has this really interesting motto, I think is, it's, it's pretty good. It's, uh, you know, improving lives a million at a time. So the, the difference between, you know, focusing on an individual versus focusing on a population is that you're not only looking at what an individual can do, or what you can do for the individual, but you're actually looking at the things that cut across populations. And when you act on those, you can have actually a big impact, even a small change in those factors. So that's the kind of gist of population health. And it, it involves public health. It also, I also work in health systems. So it also involves what people think of as healthcare, but now uh, what people know as public health a lot better than they did a couple, couple of years ago. Um, and is this something you always wanted to study? Like, did you know through your undergrad or your master's that population health is where you were headed? Or did that happen, you know, through your studies, you realized um, that it was an area of interest? Yeah, it happened in uh, my undergrad. I knew I knew I wanted to work in health and I really knew that I wanted to work on the prevention side. So I was less jazzed about solving or treating problems that have already gone so far. Um, even though that's very important, I'm glad there's people that do that. I was more, you know, excited about trying to prevent things from going wrong in the first place. I felt like that's where I got excited. Now, um, I was also very, I was good at math. I did, you know, well in all my calculus courses, but I didn't know what a career uh, in math would be like. <laughs> and in undergrad, someone said, you know, you should be an epidemiologist. They use math and statistics to focus on health. And I honestly didn't even uh, know what that career path would look like aside from, you know, I thought it was like wearing a hazmat suit and like <laughs> contagion, you know, that's, that, yeah. that's what I thought, uh, even though contagion wasn't out yet. Um, but then I realized I got- Outbreak was out by then though. Outbreak, Outbreak was, was the, out by yeah. then, yeah. Um, and then I got exposed to it more and more in my undergrad. I had some opportunities. I actually had a plant epidemiology opportunity, <laughs> which you- <laughs> 
you wouldn't, uh, you'd be surprised how important plant epidemiology is. It's the population is. health of plants. Yes. And we need plants to eat, right? Right. So uh, a lot of agriculture fields uh, have an epi- like a plant epidemiologist because when disease infects agriculture, it could be devastating. Like it can, you know, lead to starvation. So I got exposure there working on it uh, in, in that context. And then I got more health uh, exposures as well. So, and, and, and then once I, I started doing graduate studies in it, I, I fell in love and never went back. And so, so speaking of public health on a broader scale, and it's become quite a topic of conversation over the last two years, how would you describe your role in the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, how do you see your role um, in with regards to the projects you're doing through CDLRSC, but also just more broadly in you know the university and in the country. Yeah, so public health uh, and epidemiology is an applied discipline, right? Um, so the first textbook of epidemiology was only written in 1970, which is pretty recent compared to other scientific disciplines. And when you open that first page, it said it says epidemiology is an applied discipline, and we focus on so- solving applied problems. And those are the problems that affect the health of society. So as an epidemiologist, I mean, that's our role. That's I've been seeing my role and many other epidemiologists in these last couple of years to help make sense of data, to inform policies, to inform strategies. And, um, you know, it's been challenging because we do it in the context of imperfect evidence. Uh, so that's the other part, though, of being an epidemiologist. There's there's a part of epidemiology we call observational epidemiology, which sounds obvious. You observe what's happening, but that's very distinct from experimental epidemiology, which actually it's hard, uh, but when you're doing experiment, you can control a bunch of things, right? So, you know, really our role is about making, providing solutions, the best quality evidence, making sense of data, using data in a way that actually can drive change in a, in a positive way for as many people as possible. And, you know, just in, you mentioned the imperfect information. I can imagine over the course of the last two years, as as we know, there's been evolving information all the time. I mean, we all wish that we could just go to the very last page of the book and read the last paragraph. I did that with Harry Potter seven. I just read all was well. And then I went back and I was like, okay, so I'll start. Um, We all wish we could do that and, and we can't. And so I'm wondering if you could share a bit about your process with us. How do you go through understanding the information, the evolving landscape of information, and then decide how to communicate the most important points? Like, when do you get to a level of confidence in certain pieces? Um, what's that process like for you? Yeah. I mean, when timescales are slower, I'll talk about it, and then I'll talk about it, what we have to do in COVID. You know, there is a way of critically appraising evidence to understand its quality and understand the way in which evidence can be used in a particular context. And that's what we, that's what epidemiologists get trained in. Um, And so typically I would look at the quality of evidence and it's really important to have a systematic process on there because I'm I'm noticing, especially with Twitter nowadays, people will be like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. (laughs) And all of a sudden they just change their mind. But actually you have to be looking at everything in a systematic way and you have to appreciate the quality of the evidence. The study, which might be very interesting is very small and there's a high risk of bias, you're going to weight that differently than a different type of study. So there's a cycle of evaluating evidence, sometimes collecting evidence, determining its quality, and then based on that, applying it in the appropriate way. Um, 
now with COVID, that cycle is obviously speeding up. And the, and the scariest part is in a public health emergency is you have to make decisions without the benefit of the high quality evidence. So uh, a lot of the things that you interact with in your whole life, like seatbelt legislation or cell phone legislation when you're driving, all of that happened as a result of we finally have enough evidence to show your relative risk of dying in a crash is five times higher than those that aren't on the phone when they're driving. Therefore, we can do the legislation. Right. In, in COVID or any public health emergency for that matter, you have to make a decision. The quality evidence may not be there. And so you have to rest on other things. Precautionary principle might be one, or you might have to uh, go stretch that data further than you typically would. And the key thing for me is being very transparent about that, when and right. why you're doing that. Um, so sometimes you have to make a decision when you don't have evidence. The government has had to do that. Uh, and lots of places have had to do that. What they're not as good at, at is being transparent about it. We don't have the evidence we would, would want, but based on these assumptions or these goals that we're trying to achieve, this is why we're making the decision we are. And the problem is when you don't tell people that, then they start to lose trust because right. it seems like your decisions are just willy-nilly. People generally accept that you may not have the evidence, but if you don't tell them that, yeah. uh, you start losing trust. So that's been the big challenge um, in, in COVID. And I have to say, I used to be a lot, when I was a PhD student, I was like data, evidence, modeling. I was like very hard nose about everything. And I got frustrated because I was talking to my advisor and I said, I don't understand. Why are they making these decisions? The data says this, the evidence says this. And he said, well, it's a lot more complicated than that. And so I, I decided to do a postdoc in public health policy, which was not my training. As part of my, that fellowship, I did 40 key informant interviews with decision makers. And I asked how, how and why they use evidence in public health emergencies. And I got a lot more insight into why decisions happen. Right. And that really changed the way I generated evidence myself, the way I talk about evidence and uh, the way I communicate when decisions are being made. So it's almost like through that process of doing those interviews, you understood the assumptions that they had made going into making a decision and you hadn't had that transparency before to see what those assumptions were. And so you're saying if you could wave a wand and sort of change one thing, it's we would have made those decisions, but with people being informed of the assumptions we're making when we're like it, for the context, is that what you're sort of- Exactly, acknowledge uncertainty. Most, uh, I'll say politicians, generally speaking, don't like acknowledging uncertainty because they like to be sure, right? right. Um, it's not, you know, you, you feel uh, you know uneasy saying, well, I don't know, but acknowledge uncertainty and then be truthful about the reasons why a particular decision is being made as much as possible. So for example, during H1N1, there was a decisions made around masking. There were same questions whether it's airborne or not. And they put N95s in when they didn't have the evidence because they knew there would be a major strike uh, of the union, nursing union, if they didn't. Right. Well, that's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually yeah. a good reason to put that policy in place. People understood that. The evidence came later, but they didn't have the evidence at the time. And so it's about that transparency. And so when you, you talk about um, coming to conclusions, I want to talk about you as an individual researcher, what's that bar of, you know, going forward with a recommendation or, or having the confidence or the conviction to get behind, okay, I have, I I'm satisfied now, or I'm satisfied that in, in pairing it with my stating my assumptions, 
this is how I'm going to, you know, provide this recommendation. How, how does, how long does that take you and what process do you need to go through or what things do you need to make sure that you personally can get there? Yeah. So the first thing is the quality of the evidence and the risk of bias in that evidence. Meaning when I say bias, I'm not, I'm using it in a very broad way, meaning are the conclusions drawn from that evidence because of what they were saying or are there alternate explanations? And so that's the first thing I always look at. And, um, there's lots of things that affect that. So that will be the first thing. And the second, and you get better at that over time. So when I started, it would take me, you know, days to really synthesize and understand whether something is of high quality and then you, you get faster over time. And in fact, like there's teams that do this now. Um, the second thing though is replication. So it's really important that it's not just a one-off anecdote like right. that's the lowest form of evidence right we, or case studies we would we don't even can use that right. but it's it's more than you know happened in a large reasonable sample size and it's been replicated ideally in more than one context right so that's the other piece of information that we would go on and so how many times have you received a text or a phone call saying well my my uncle's friend said that like has that been the last two years yeah. A lot of anecdotes these last couple of years. Um, and uh, if someone would get together and collect them all <laughs> and analyze them in a systematic way, I'd be happy to hear them. Yeah, but we one, can pull, the pull all the stories one, from Twitter. Yeah, the N equals one are, are a little challenging. It's it's challenging. I mean, it's interesting. I won't say it's not interesting, but it's challenging for me to then make a recommendation based on that. Right. Um, so I want to talk about the process of research. I think people think about research and generally interpret it as a very individual undertaking. When in reality, it's actually quite a collaboration, I would say a very big team effort. Um, so my question to you is, is what do you think makes a great team? Great, great question. Uh, science in general, and especially epidemiology is definitely a team sport. The best teams, uh, teamwork that I've ever been involved in, and they produce like, so first of all, unsurprisingly, good teams produce the best projects, best science. The best ones are ones that bring together different skill sets to solve one problem. So you might have an amazing data engineer that's able to harness data in ways that this person couldn't, an amazing statistician, a content expert that's putting on the lens of how that data is collected and what it means. You would never know. Like this happens a lot with health data. When you assume a billing codes mean something and then the doctor's <laughs> like, oh no, they don't, that, you don't use it for that because yeah. if you go this way, it goes this way. So content expert, and then someone that actually has strong communication skills to be able to, to or data visualization to be able to tell the story about science. So, you know, that's a specific team, but any team where different expertise play a role and everyone's functioning together for a common goal and each of their roles is valued and can shine is where, is where the magic happens. And how do you approach leading teams and mentorship? Because I know you have a lot of students through um, your program at U of T, as well as you're a part of, you know, growing projects and things like that. What are your sort of tenets of leadership when you approach your projects? Yeah. So the, the first one is really understanding to, to what I was saying earlier, what each individual strengths are and their motivations, right? So I spent a lot of time really trying to listen and understand that and leverage that because there's no point in me trying to say, you do this, you do that, you do that. If I know it doesn't line up with their goals, their interests. Um, so that that's the first part. Um, the second part is really uh, trying to, uh, you know, celebrate and let others lead as much as possible. I mean, that if everything has to go through me, 
or, or I have to control everything, it's just going to limit what we can do. And so knowing when I need to lead, because I do need to lead and knowing when I need to support. And right. so that's, that's a really key dance that any leader needs to do and never be being too far from what the work actually is. So you can jump in and help whenever's needed. Um, and just, just like two more questions here. Um, in thinking about support, I, I was thinking about, I don't know if you saw the Mr. Rogers movie and there's that line that he says that to kids, he says, you know, when the world gets really scary and you're looking in the news and you get really worried about things, look for the helpers. And his, he says, always look for the helpers. So I'm curious to know in the last two years, specifically over the pandemic, where have you found those helpers when you've had, I'm sure lots of data and you've been able to sort of predict and see where the modeling is going and knowing sort of what's in store for us. Um, where have you found that support and helpers in, in your life? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, definitely um, being close to people that are really motivated to solve the problem. So, yeah. you know, you can work with really brilliant scientists that are still like focused on, you know, something that's a bit academic, but we're in an emergency right now. So sometimes you have to walk away from that really interesting academic paper to divert your energy to the emergency response. And it's never going to show up in a paper because it's informing an operational decision, let's say. Um, but that's really important. So making sure that there are people that uh, like line up with those values. Um, I've definitely found support in uh, CDL RSC um, and really appreciating that good ideas are one thing, but actually making them happen is equally, if not more important. And so like how much we actually need to collaborate on those pieces that we're not 100% with. And like, we don't have those skills, like some of those skills I don't have myself or experience. And then, you know, you realize that you don't have to take it all on yourselves. Cause I can't believe how many times I felt like I've had a good idea, but I didn't know how to execute it necessarily. And the problem was I shouldn't have been thinking about how to execute. I should have been <laughs> reaching out for help to people that yeah. actually know how to do it and coming together as a team. Awesome. That, you know, lesson of knowing when to lean and knowing when to, when to reach out as well. Um, so my last question for you then is, is, you know, we're not all the way through COVID-19 yet, of course, but knowing what you know now of the last two years, sort of, and if you could wave a wand into the future and have just one or two key learnings that people would hang on to for the next time that we may embrace or see, you know, a pandemic, what would those things be? What, what would you hope that we would carry with us as a learning into the next, um, potentially the next pandemic? Oh, good question. So number one is we, uh, we have to invest in the things that are really important, even when things are good. So this is like known as the paradox of prevention where everything's fine. Why do we need to invest in a very strong, robust PCR system? Why do we need a strong data system? Why do we need to monitor wastewater sewage? But we actually do. And those things yeah. are important and, the, and it takes time and energy to build them. So build them, build them when things aren't an emergency, um, appreciating the value. Um, the second thing I'll say is how important it is to have a society that values science this pandemic has been the, the misinformation or the infodemic is sometimes uh, called, um, is really scary to me actually, because it, it's not just about like getting your COVID vaccine. It's about all the decisions we're making on climate, 
on you know social security on on so, on so many things and when there's that mistrust and misinformation it really starts fracturing things and i don't think we paid enough attention to how powerful it is um, in our public health response it's a collective uh, obviously responsibility but that's the second thing i really want us to to work on yeah and going back to when you were talking about what makes great teams actually the last thing you said was making sure you have someone who knows how to communicate it or do data visualizations that are going to be impactful and how important that is, especially in this age where communication is happening all the time. 100%. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Joanne D'Angelo, Amar Kaur, and me, Elizabeth Chim. And afterwards, we'll bring back Laura to discuss a couple more public health topics. Greetings, Earthlings. That's us, right? That's us. Yeah, that is you. Hey, Sonia. Hello. So, Dr. Laura Rosella, how great was that conversation with her? I think the past couple of years might have been a lot better if everyone had a Laura to personally explain public health to them. <laughs> that's been a, that's been very lucky for us to be able to just be around her and learn and glean some epidemiological knowledge. Who can say epidemiology fast five times? <laughs> yeah, go. I, I was going to say that. I did it in the intro. You heard me do it. It was a lot. It was a lot. I think you messed up once. Uh, no, I, ha- I had to do my <laughs> vocal training before. A proper copper pot. A proper copper pot. I did that before we sat down today. That was Epidemiology is a very difficult word. Um, I researched, so Laura said that apparently the first textbook about epidemiology was published in 1970. And actually the very first professor of epidemiology was Dr. Wade Hampton Frost, 1930 at uh, John Hopkins. Um, So that was the first professor. There was also an article about him Apparently, he was the first professor of epidemiology, but he was a terrible lecturer. And the article reads, the pioneering epidemiologist would hold hold a cigarette in one hand while lecturing in the classroom, a piece of chalk in the other, almost never writing anything on the board. And he would speak so softly that students had to strain to hear. I just thought that was really funny. Amazing that he's smoking and that ended up being a population health issue. So an interesting thing that I really related to that she was talking about is how when she was in her undergrad um, she basically didn't really know what she wanted to go into Um, she knew she liked mathematics and so somebody suggested that she should go into epidemiology when all of you were doing your schooling or in your undergrad did you know what you wanted to do after no i'm seeing a resounding no no a lot of uh, head, uh, head shakes. Actually, I will say the only thing I knew that I would want to be in, and I think this was just a, a massive just motivation or just like what I knew and grew up with was I just knew I needed to be in science because both my parents had PhDs in biochemistry. And so I heard nothing else at home, but I also actually just enjoyed studying that more than anything else. So it's not like it was that thing, it was what I was exposed to at home. But even at school, I tried different courses, but I knew that like something related to science is what I wanted to go in. Clearly, that's not where I am right now, but that was the only thing. Guiding. I went through something similar with like just cultural pressures of being Asian. Um, 
we had a lot of uh, push to be in science, me and my brother. And so, but it worked out because I loved science. But then last minute in 12th grade, I decided, no, I'm applying to art school, (laughs) fine arts. And um, I went to art school for two years, realized I didn't like it, and then went back to a STEM degree. I wanted to build things. All I knew is I wanted to build things. I didn't know what the things were, but I just wanted to create things. That's, that's the only compass I had. And then I had the chance to work as an engineer in some summer student placements. And that totally opened my eyes to what was possible in the world and how many things need to be built. So that was exciting, but I had no plan. No, but initially. Yeah. I also thought I was going to be a rock star. Okay. Okay. That dream hasn't died. It hasn't fully died. There's a chance. There's a very, you know, there's a chance, but yeah, I had a lot of different focuses, should I say in my undergrad music being a huge one of them. What about you, Joe? Oh, well, no, for me, it was going to have my uh, name lit up in Broadway. That was the plan. She's an actor. <laughs> yeah, no, but that that uh, got squashed uh, quickly um, once I realized the reality of it. What reality? Uh, that I wasn't going to get make any money anytime soon. It's going <laughs> to be. I have, it's a very I, long road. It's uh, yeah, yeah, it is. So yeah, I got jaded quickly. So we talked about. Um, well, not we. Sana and Laura talked a lot about misinformation uh, during the pandemic. I wanted to ask the group, um, what has been your experience with misinformation or what has been the most sort of ridiculous type of misinformation spread that you've seen over the last two years? So have you heard of birds aren't real? No. Yes, there are robots to spy on us. And that's why you don't see them at night because they go back to recharge at their Yeah, they recharge dogs. on the on the electrical wires. That's why they sit on electrical wires. No, seriously, is this on is this somewhere? No, birds can... aren't real, Joanne. Oh, this is not good, guy. It's a government conspiracy. <laughs> that I would say has been phenomenal to learn more about. I've never heard of that. Wow. Yeah. They have cameras in their eyes and they're they're spying on the citizens of the United States. Oh, this is not. And probably is... Canada. My guess is they can oh, fly okay. right. across it, the entire across the border. So okay. Mexico as well. <laughs> the Caribbean, potentially. Right. And who do you think is the guy that's dressing up in a Sasquatch outfit? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you mean Bigfoot? Like who, the Bigfoot or Sat, whatever it is. Oh, yeah. It's, real, it's like, it's the, real. You know, and like, who Joanne, made that? There, like, who look, made the there's, pop? Yeah. Get on YouTube. There's videos. It is real. Right. It's, you can see it with your own eyes in 2D. <laughs> You heard it here first. Birds aren't real, but Sasquatches are. (laughs) We are now entering into a segment within Connected Intelligence called Going Viral with Dr. Laura Rosella. So during the pandemic, Laura would lead a weekly public health update for our CDL Rapid Screening Consortium community. It fast became the number one segment within our meetings. Uh, Given the complexity that we still see in the public health sphere, we're going to continue the segment through the life of our podcast. So now it is my pleasure to welcome back our recurring guest, Dr. Laura Rosella. Hello, Laura. Hello, Sonia. So it's been a couple months since we chatted. Uh, at the time, we were marveling at the Omicron wave, and um, a lot's happened since that time. So 
what has happened since then and sort of where are we now with COVID-19? Well, since the Omicron wave, we've seen several subsequent waves driven by Omicron, but slightly different subvariants. So it's not the original virus we saw when Omicron came on the scene in January. They're slightly different versions of that, which has been causing all kinds of uh, problems. We There's been different waves in different parts of the world. In where we are in Canada, we had a seventh wave. We're in the seventh wave right now. Um, so that's the situation that's currently happening in Canada. We've peaked and we're coming down off the seventh wave. And looking into the rest of the year between now and sort of December, what do you think we can can expect? Well, I think there, I mean, one thing I'll just say is I think we've all seen to expect a little bit of the unexpected with this virus. Uh, there's still a lot of change and churn. I don't think anyone in the world feels comfortable uh, saying that there's some predictability or seasonality that we can rely on. That being said, it's not that we have no idea what's likely coming. There is pretty broad consensus that in the fall, we were going to see a wave. I think there was debate on whether we'd see the summer wave that we're seeing now. Uh, Obviously, we saw it. But I think a bigger consensus that we are going to see another wave in the fall. It most likely will be an Omicron subvariant, which one remains to be seen. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one is just the gathering of indoors increases respiratory virus, all respiratory viruses. So in the fall and the winter, we see all respiratory viruses increase, and we know that COVID is not gone. So there's no reason why that one wouldn't also increase. So I think that's uh, what we're expecting. Um, we are seeing some shifts in severity, though. So that's another thing that even though we're expecting resurgence in cases, we are not expecting the same impact on on hospitalization. That being said, we know that it's still going to be a challenge for our uh, our healthcare system and people still will be hospitalized, especially if lots of people get infected. So one of the key aspects of the work we did at the CDL Rapid Screening Consortium was prevention. So preventing someone from going in the workplace by testing at home, for example. So we can still get those tests, some, some at Sobeys or Shoppers Drug Mart in Canada, um, do the tests still work? Is that is a question that often comes up. Yeah. And the, you know, this was a question that came up the entire pandemic through the entire screening uh, consortium experience. You know, we had original COVID, then we went alpha, delta, beta, <laughs> subvariants. And every time we had these changes, do the tests still work? And then Omicron, which was the most significant change, Uh, we saw most recently, and the tests do work. I think that's the bottom line. Of course, there's always questions about slight changes in sensitivity and specificity. We've always talked about rapid antigen tests as a screening test, uh, something that it may miss. It's not as sensitive as a PCR test, but it does pick up a number of the infections. And from the studies, we don't see a major shift in performance of these tests across these um, subvariants. And one of the reasons is because most of the rapid antigen tests work on the N protein. We talked about this a lot um, in our public health updates, 
which is a bit more stable. The S protein is the one that's changing a lot on the virus. I mean, there's lots of changes and it it's, uh, can get really complicated, but just to simplify it. And so because that aspect of the virus is a bit more stable and that's what most of these tests are based on, they are still working and they're still a useful tool. The S protein, of course, being the spike protein. Correct. My COVID, my COVID trivia is still very strong. Um, and so I guess as we come into this next couple months or going into the future that we cannot yet predict, what would be the single piece of advice or thing that you'd want our community to know and take with them going into the next few months? Yeah, great question. The one thing I want everyone to know and remember is that we have tools that work at reducing risk. And we talked a lot about layers of protection and uh, what we know with COVID and actually most viruses and most things in the world, bad things that we're trying to prevent, there's never one solution, right? It's not just do this one thing and that won't happen. There's things we know that reduce risk. We call those layers of protection. And I would say use them and use them when risk is increasing. So we have things like masks, which we know help, especially with how this virus has evolved, it being airborne and quite infectious. Uh, we have, you know, being careful about seeing high-risk people indoors, ventilation, and of course, rapid antigen tests. So uh, definitely, if you're feeling um, unwell, there's lots of recommendations on testing. You could consider a more routine screening uh, protocol in your workplace, if that's something that um, is appropriate for your workplaces to reduce risk, we found that very useful, especially during periods of high risk. Um, and, uh, you know, other, you know, hygiene and, and other sort of measures to sort of reduce risk. Um, being very careful when you travel or you know you've had a high-risk exposure, monitoring for, you know, three to five days after. These are the types of things that are, we know they worked. So let's not say, well, we're in a different phase. Let's forget about all the tools we used before. Let's use them, use them a bit more judiciously and precisely, and uh, they will make an impact. So we should still be singing happy birthday in our, in our heads when we wash our hands, is what you're saying. Yes. I mean, <laughs> everyone should always be doing that for lots of reasons. Um, but also, yeah, just making sure, taking care. And, you know, I think the most dangerous thing would be to say, well, it just doesn't exist anymore. We're over. We're done. We know we're not done. It's not done. We're in a different phase. Risk is different. It's impacting us different. Vaccines have made a tremendous impact, especially on the severity, uh, which is good, but it's still there. And we still have tools that we know work. If, you know, we had prevented it from turning to an, into a global pandemic, it would have been gone. Lots of viruses start out as just localized outbreaks. Just like most startups die, right? Exactly. That is the perfect analogy. And then a few become Walmart. Yeah. You and know, they figure out and how multinational to corporations. COVID but, figured out how to scale. And they are never going away for a very long time, but many stay in the incubator and never get out. And that's what, what happens with viruses. When did we cross the line when it was like, okay, now this is with us. It was in March, 2020, because we saw it in multiple places in the world. And this is why the alarms raising with monkeypox as well, because when it's in one location, 
you can concentrate your prevention efforts in that location and then eventually it will die down and that's it. But once you start seeing exponential growth in multiple places around the world, that's what, that's the definition of a pandemic. It's very difficult. So in March, once we had started seeing it in Europe and you see in the big cities, right? New York, California, like it's the same story, just like we're seeing with monkeypox. Big cities shows up first. And once it's at that point, it's very difficult. So we couldn't have, when we, we, in March, 2020, when they closed the NBA and they made the declaration, it was already too late to sort of put the genie back in the bottle. I, we definitely could have minimized the impact. Right. So I don't know if we would have just, you know, put it back in and gone and we're, we're fine, but definitely the impact and the spread could have been minimized. So there was lots of opportunities in, in March to prevent it from becoming what it became, um, but to totally eradicate it without a vaccine would have been very difficult at that point, given that there was global spread already. So now shifting our conversation. Okay. So there's a new virus in town and by town, I mean the world monkeypox. So the WHO just declared its highest level of alert in July about the spread of monkeypox. So what is monkeypox and how concerned should we be? Yeah, monkeypox is another virus that comes from animals. Um, most of the viruses that actually cause a lot of problems for us humans come from animals. And sometimes there's a back and forth between humans and animals. And uh, the reason why that's a problem is because it really challenges our immune system. So it's very closely related to the smallpox uh, virus, which we know uh, we had a major uh uh, outbreak of, you know, 50, over 50 years ago, um, lots of people have been vaccinated against smallpox, but we eradicated it through a very successful uh, vaccine campaign. Smallpox was a bit more transmissible, actually, so um, the spread would happen a bit more quickly. And um, we had lots of global collaboration, actually, with smallpox. Very interesting. So um, I hope I, something I think that we'd like to see more of um, uh, nowadays, but we eradicated smallpox through a very successful vaccine. Monkeypox uh, is endemic in certain parts of Africa. So it's not that it's brand new that we've never seen this before. There would be localized outbreaks, especially in communities that live close to the animals where this virus comes from. And they would generally be confined. And, and we call that endemic when it's just more of a local uh, spread. Um, but what we saw in the past few months is that it's showing up in a bunch of different cities and uh, there's high levels of alert. Um, maybe one thing I can explain that other people may not realize is that these alert levels, I mean, they're not just there to scare people. They're actually there because they're tied to action and resources. So when a state declares a, a state of emergency like New York, what that does is frees up resources to be able to do things that normally aren't there. So deploy additional resources for vaccination, et cetera. So that's why the level's gone up because the outbreak has reached a point where we're not just seeing it localized, we're seeing it around the world in lots of cities and we actually need resources to combat it. And what could we do as individuals to protect ourselves as like, as it evolves and, and sort of spreads? Right. So, um, First thing about monkeypox is that the mode of transmission is 
very different than COVID-19 or other uh, respiratory viruses. So it really spreads through close contact, close prolonged contact. And that happens when people are close together um, and through very intimate acts like sexual intercourse, et cetera. So that's one of the main modes of, trans of transmission. It could also be people that live in a household together because if you're sharing bed sheets and uh, very, very close living to uh, quarters, then you can also spread it that way. So um, that, that means that when we think about preventing a virus, we think about the modes of transmission. And so when it's close contact, that's very different. The tools that we use to prevent are very different. So that's one thing to say. The other thing to say, the type of illness it results in, um, sort of large lesions, uh, you know, fever, malaise, that kind of thing, uh, a rash, and then depending on where it occurs, that can cause other problems. So um, it can be similar to something like chickenpox, um, and then there can be sometimes infections that, that follow as a result of the lesions, et cetera. So that's what the illness is. Transmission's quite different. What can we do as individuals to protect yourself back to your question? So because we know the main mode of transmission is close contact, that's being very careful about close contacts and um, who we have close contact with and making sure that if anyone is ill or feeling ill, that we're taking extra precautions there. Um, because it is uh, close contact of multiple types. It's not that, for example, condom use will, will prevent it. You can still transmit it even, um, even though you're using um, condoms and being safe that way. So that's one of the main modes uh, to be careful of. The other really good news, so this is a big positive, is that the smallpox vaccine is effective. So we have a safe and effective vaccine that already works. And so lots of states and countries around the world are, are launching vaccine campaigns and they're targeted though. So it's not that everybody in the world needs a vaccine at this point. It's people that are high risk and people that are potentially in those high risk close contact situations. And so there's been lots of targeted vaccine campaigns, pretty effective in Canada and in the US and that, that's what's happening right now. And so they've been calling it a monkeypox vaccine, but it's actually a very long-standing, trusted smallpox vaccine. Is what you're saying? Yeah, that works. Um, against, a rebrand. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the immune response that you produce as a result of being immunized with the smallpox vaccine is protective against uh, monkeypox. So that's why they're able to use it, which is fantastic. Great news. Great news. Um, okay. Recently, a suburb in New York detected polio in its wastewater. And about one month later, there was a case, a recorded case in a patient uh, in New York with polio. So a lot of people are probably thinking, you know, polio was squashed out of existence in the 50s. Um, can you talk us through how this is happening right now and what conditions need to exist for something like polio to have a sequel? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Um, you know, polio has been popping up actually in little places here and there. It was, you know, said to be eradicated, as you said, because again, a very effective vaccine campaign, but then it started popping up in different parts of the world uh, where we call, we say that they're under vaccinated. So it's either, it's not that they're not vaccinated at all, but their vaccine rates are not high enough to protect, uh, protect the population. And um, 
you know, really interesting. We, we've all been vaccinated uh, because it's part of our routine immunization program. So we're protected against polio, but there are pockets of individuals that are not. And one of the, you know, collateral damage of COVID, if you will, has been that people fell behind on routine immunizations. So there's some parts in the world where there's been barriers to access to polio vaccines. So they're not getting the routine vaccines that you know, we, we get in Canada for whatever reasons. And then there's people here now where we do have routine immunization programs that aren't up to date because there's been a lot of disruption. So what's happening now is that polio's reemerged as the, you know, in the population and it's finding those unvaccinated pockets. And that's what we're likely seeing here. Um, there's not the same alarm uh, that we're seeing with something like even monkeypox, because we know there's lots of people susceptible because they have, you know, we haven't been vaccinated against smallpox uh, or monkeypox um, for, you know, anyone that's over the age, under the age of 50 wouldn't have likely received a smallpox vaccine. So there's lots of susceptible people out there. Whereas with polio, uh, lots of immunity exists already in the population. So officials are keeping an eye for sure, but really interesting that the wastewater surveillance now becoming a really core part of our viral surveillance. We're going to find lots of things, lots of viruses in that wastewater, um, but not necessarily infections if we have protection like through vaccine programs. But if people are susceptible, they will show up. And so we're watching carefully, but this one, we do have really strong immunity in the population. And hopefully it's just a couple cases here and there and um, we can get that addressed through vaccine programs. And so just a quick follow-up on that. You mentioned that people may be falling behind on their vaccinations and there, there was some disruption in the process um, over the last few years. Is that just people scheduling to get in? Is it you know, also hesitation or a different attitude towards vaccination or is it a combination of both? Uh, it's a, definitely a combination of both. I would say, um, I mean, it's hard to know how much one is contributing more than other. Um, I would say the biggest one is just disruption to routine care. Um, you know, when people are seeing their healthcare provider on a regular basis, they're having conversations, they're reminded about all, all the things they have to do, um, and routine immunizations becomes one part of them. So that's, I think, been a big part. Certainly, vaccine hesitancy is a major uh, public health issue, and you know, we have a disinformation and misinformation issue that's been growing and it doesn't just affect vaccines. We've seen it affect political uh, and global um, issues. So that is a major issue actually for our society. And so that's been contributing certainly to maybe people deciding not to get vaccinated. But generally speaking, I think it's access, opportunity, you know, just getting around to it and having those conversations in that trusted relationship with your healthcare provider that, you know, were happening all the time and obviously got disrupted over the pandemic. Okay. And just as we wrap up here, um, given that people won't be able to hear from you every week uh, on updates, where can people get the best or what's the best way for us to stay informed? Um, you know, there's a deluge of articles out there and, you know, news articles to click and outlets online, what would you recommend to just, you know, someone like me, who's just trying to stay up to date on what's going on? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is such a good question. And again, it's like a very dynamic space. I always tell people that I would always go to uh, your local, uh, your provincial or your provin- you know, state, uh, if you're in the US, uh, public health uh, agency and their website. So, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, one is it's nice to get localized contextual information. So for in Canada, we have the Public Health Agency of Canada or in different provinces, you know, in Ontario, we have Public Health Ontario and Quebec, we have NSBQ, um, BCCDC, for example. That's always my recommendation for first source of information. And I, I want people to understand that the information there is, is vetted, it's meant to be useful, um, as much as possible, it's evidence-based. And uh, even if there's emerging evidence, it'll say like, this is what we know now based on the emergency evidence. There's teams of people that do really rigorous uh, reviews of the literature and it's written in the clear accessible way. And I really think that's the best way, place for people to go. The news, um, you know, they've been, there's a lot of amazing uh, people in the media doing a really good job asking great questions, but Sometimes it's challenging because you get a little bit of the on one hand, but the other hand framing, which is in lots of news stories and it's great, but generally speaking, there's some facts that we know, which like are a big part of the story. And then there might be something that's interesting, which is a small part of the story. And sometimes in the news media, they're framed the same and it can be confusing. Um, so I think news media can be a good source. And I think journalists do a, like they do a really good job at trying to fact check. Um, so this is, it's just that sometimes it can be confusing and I'm sure you felt that I'm sure everyone's yes. felt that you see these headlines and you're like, what is and, happening? And the tweets. Yeah. Yeah. Now Twitter, I would say, uh, unfortunately, probably not a great source of information again, unless it's coming from. It depends who it's coming from. So if it's coming from Public Health Agency of Canada or some of these trusted uh, public health organizations, then I think that that's okay. Um, but you know, anyone can say anything in Twitter. It's too short, to be honest, to be able to really give you like it can. There can be a headline there, but you're not going to really get a good understanding. So unfortunately, that's probably not best. I mean interesting to see what's going on, other reasons people use Twitter, but uh, hasn't been very helpful um, compared to the other news sources. The last thing I'll say is I really encourage people to talk to primary care providers or their healthcare providers around them. I mean, these are people that care about you and your health, and that's who you would talk to if you had a stomach ache (laughs) or a pain in your shoulder that you don't know where it's coming from or an odd bump you know, why wouldn't you talk to them about the situation, how you should be worried and how you should assess risk, especially if you have, you know, you're immunocompromised or you have other considerations that maybe don't get covered in the news stories. Uh, I mean, what better than having a trusted conversation with someone that you trust with all your other um, health questions. Amazing. And just on influenza. Yes. And how we don't really know. It's almost like every year, we host a party and we have no idea who's showing up for the party. So you have to just make as much food as possible that would suit as many different people with, you know, and then see who shows up. Yeah. I mean, not, uh, it's not totally like you have no idea. It's like you invited 20 people, right. 10 are coming 
and you don't know of the 20, which 10 are coming. Right. So, because so, and with influenza, there's a certain number of strains. And luckily we have pretty good global collaboration on which strains are circulating and see uh, influenza seasonal. So, and because of the equator, winter uh, in Australia is different than winter in Canada. And therefore we can look at their winter season, which is before our winter season to determine what's happening and vice versa. They look at ours and they get ready for what strains might be circulating there. So, you know, you do have a list. (laughs) It's just, the problem is sometimes, you know, it, it varies from the best guess of what you think is circulating, but, you know, scientists have gotten quite good at determining what are the three most likely, and we put multiple strains in there. So what are the three most likely strains that are circulating? And uh, it's usually pretty good. Right. So there hasn't been a time when we prepared for exactly the wrong 10 people. There hasn't uh, been a time. Um, I, I wouldn't say that. We call that vaccine mismatch. And there have been a couple seasons of influenza where uh, unfortunately the vaccines we planned for were not the vaccines that made it through for whatever reason, unpredictable reasons. But that doesn't happen very often. And when it does happen, we have very severe seasons and you see it in the hospitals. So when hospitals have lots of flu, um, and they're really strained. That happens to be when there's a vaccine mismatch, but that doesn't happen very often. Thank goodness. So it's like very iterative. It's very iterative. And you probably have heard, there's been lots of really exciting, uh, scientific stories on the universal influenza vaccine. Yes. Scientists are trying to find a vaccine that would work against all strains. It's really tough, right? But they're getting very close. They've made tremendous progress. So I, in the future, I do believe we will have a universal influenza vaccine that will work across strains the one ring to rule them all approach yes um okay i did say something i want to say it again so the marvel cinematic universe um the marvel cinematic universe is able to map out all of their different varieties of superhero movies they just announced phase five and six at the at the comic con recently and for us with the thing that I guess we're learning either whether it's about COVID or the influenza vaccine or how these things change is we can't actually predict what to plan for. Like, we don't know what we're going to see in 2028. I mean, I know we're going to see some sort of version of the Avengers in a couple of years, but we don't know that what we're going to see. And is something like wastewater surveillance helping us get there? Yeah. Um, And what are the other tools that we have now that we didn't have maybe 20 years ago that are helping us better predict? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely uh, wastewater is one of the sort of new forms of surveillance that's here to stay. It's telling us about what viruses are there circulating in humans. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be an epidemic or like, as we talked about with uh, polio, if we have immunity or vaccinations, not necessarily a problem, but that's one of them. Um, the other one tool that is very cool that's there's been tremendous advances in the last 10, 20 years is molecular surveillance. So before we used to, um, you know, think, think about like evolution and like humans evolving from, uh, you know, Neanderthals over tens and thousands and millions of years. Well, viruses do that on a, a very quick scale. And now there are scientists, virologists, 
who actually monitor, monitor the genetic components of the virus, how they change. They have these really sophisticated genetic trees um, monitoring that. So that's a huge tool. So even if we're using our regular surveillance mechanisms like swabs or however else we would have lab confirmed viruses, before we would just say, okay, we've got lab confirmed influenza. Now they're genotyping it wow. and they're tracking that. And, oh, this comes from this outbreak. And you can actually determine from the outbreak, it's like a forensic investigation. Well, it's most likely related to that one. It's 23andMe for viruses. Yes. <laughs> 23andMe, CSI, like <laughs> however you, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, so that tool, that like expansion of using ge the genetic information of the virus and then tying them together in, in more complex analyses is a tremendous advance. So even though we're using the same samples, we're looking at them in a much more sophisticated way. And that's telling us a lot. And then of course we can study all these histories of evolution of the, how the virus evolves. And eventually to your Marvel point, we might be able to predict. There are um, mathematical modelers that try and predict how viruses might evolve and they might do four or five versions of it. Like imagine like a wow SimCity for viruses. Um, so they kind of just say like, when if the virus went this way or that way or that way, and then you can plan different scenarios based on that. So that is super cool. And that is the future of viral surveillance. Wow. And responses. And I'm picturing maybe like 10, 15 years from now, when you were telling us the story about how the, the evolution of smallpox to what we now know as monkeypox and how the vaccine still applies. I mean, what are going to be these stories of, of the viruses that we've learned from in the past that we can sort of prevent in the future? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was just, there is, and there is, I should also mention, there is, you can make a monkeypox specific vaccine. It's very similar to the smallpox vaccine and you can actually put both in a virus, right? So it's just works like, you know, maybe one works um, simplifying 80%. And then if you add some additional components, it works now 90% against both. So we're going to see much more of these combination type vaccines. Amazing. Okay. Lots to look forward to. And this conversation continues yes. to be continued. As TBD. They say. Yeah. Awesome. It's not, viruses, uh, let me just say, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> They've been around a lot longer than we have. And, uh, and they're, they're very smart. Them. They're very smart. Always evolving, changing, adapting. We could learn a lot from viruses, actually. They're agile. It sounds like, I'm, agile. I'm, yeah, it sounds like I'm selling a software, but it's agile. It's smart. Yeah. It's fast. Yeah. Yep. I feel like there should be a course at uh, business schools about what we can learn from viruses. something here from viruses. Something here. Yeah. Laura, thank you so much for joining us and for imparting your wisdom and experience um, on, on our listeners. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a great conversation. 